After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. It is one of the wildest, most underexplained portions of Scripture, and yet here we find it in the three synoptic Gospels. When we think of the things that, that the Holy Spirit made sure to tell us over and over again through, through those three Gospels, we, we think of the important ones, right? We think of uh, Jesus' baptism, and we think of Jesus' crucifixion. We think of, of his institution of the Lord's Supper. Maybe you think of that, that momentous occasion in which he fed 5,000 people based on a miracle. When we think of the things that, that God puts in his word and reiterates to us over and over and over again, we think of those things that, that are momentous that changed the way that we see our Savior or changed the way that the people at that time saw their Savior. So who's this for? Is it just for those three disciples? Why on earth would the transfiguration have to be included in all three Gospels if essentially Jesus just went up there, showed something to three disciples, and then came back down and said, shh, don't tell anybody? What is happening here that is so momentous? It's this. The glory of God in its fullness is coming face to face with sinful people. And that's important. I want you today to put yourselves in the shoes of, let's say, John today. Today you're in the shoes of John and, and you're with all of the other disciples and Jesus kind of kind of taps you on the back and says, hey, we're going to go over here. Uh, just, just you, James, and Peter, we're, we're going to go up on this mountain. And maybe if you're in John's shoes, you're probably at this point in Jesus' ministry not really asking him questions when he says something like that to you because, well, Jesus is Jesus and you're you and, and you've seen plenty from him that you can trust him and so you just go right along and do whatever Jesus is telling you to do. And so they slip off, those, those four men, and they go up the mountain. And, and you can imagine maybe, maybe there's some conversation going on or maybe it's, it's pretty quiet. But you get to a certain point on the mountain and, and nobody behind you is able to see you anymore. And all of a sudden, Jesus stops and he turns around and his face isn't human anymore. 
by all accounts, you have almost nothing in this world to compare him to except for maybe the sun. And you look him face to face in the eyes and you go, this just two seconds ago was my brother and my friend Jesus, and now he is clearly something so much more. It's at this moment where God is is revealing the full glory of himself through his Savior, proving to those disciples that were standing around, this is the promised one. This is the true son of God. This is much more than a brother or a friend. This, this is a savior. I don't know how many of us watched the Super Bowl this week. Yeah, maybe a couple. And during the Super Bowl, you might have seen some of those ads, the he gets us ads. And there was something cool about those being on that big of a stage. But at the same time, it was missing something, wasn't it? He Gets Us does a a beautiful job of highlighting the humanity of Jesus, but what is it missing? Exactly what we're seeing on the mountain of transfiguration. That perfect divinity. That God became flesh, and in his flesh he was still able to dwell with his people, to, to sympathize with his people, all the while being true, perfect God here to save his people from their sins. Yes, there's something more going on than Jesus the man. No, this shows the disciples, you've had it all right. Put yourself back in John's shoes for a second. Maybe there were times in that walk with Christ in which he thought to himself, yeah, this is, this is cool, but... I think we like to think that maybe besides Peter, none of the rest of the disciples had had many doubts in their hearts as far as Jesus went. But because they were true human beings just like us, you have to imagine that they were there. The doubts must have nipped at the back of their heels that entire walk with Jesus. And so for Peter, James, and John on this day, it is this, this vindication where they get to see Jesus in all of his glory and chase away all of those doubts and say, we were right to follow this guy. And now Moses, who's considered the greatest prophet, who's considered God's spokesperson, appears with Jesus. We were right. And Elijah's right there, who was another one of God's great spokespeople throughout the Old Testament. We were right. No, you can imagine in this blissful moment in which you feel that you have been vindicated, your beliefs, your feelings, your entire life and its purpose has been vindicated, you could imagine why Peter said, hey, why on earth would we go anywhere? Let's stay right here. Let's stay right here. Peter says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, One for Moses and one for Elijah. This is awesome. Can we just stay right here? Do we really have to go back down the mountain? Can't we just stay at the top of the mountain where the glory of God is on full display and it seems as if sin has been chased out of the world even just for a moment? Can we please stay here where everything in the world finally feels Right. 
but maybe there's something else going on here with Peter. And for that, we have to go verses before the ones that we had for today. And we see this interaction between Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus tells his disciples, I'm, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And in three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. And how did Peter take it? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. So maybe Peter's got his eye on the future a little bit here. And he's standing on the mountain with his Lord Jesus and everything just seems so perfect. And he says, do we really have to go do that, that ugly thing that you were talking about? Do you really have to leave this mountain and, and go die? Are you really going to put us through that? Why can't we just stay right here? The other gospel writer, Luke, notes that Peter makes this offer because he didn't know what he was saying. And can you blame him? As people who live in a, in a sinful world today, can you blame him? If you found yourself in the presence of God and his glory and his perfection, everything in the world finally felt right just for a second, could you blame Peter for saying, can't we just stay right here? If you and I had a shot at that, why on earth, why on earth wouldn't we say, let's just stay right here? Well, why couldn't they? Because Jesus had a job to do. Jesus promised to come into this world, not just to put his glory on display for five minutes. He, he didn't come into this world just to give three people 20 minutes with him and Elijah and Moses. He came here to give you and I glory with him for an eternity. And so Jesus said, uh-uh, we can't stay here. At the bottom of this mountain, there's something too important that has to happen in these next days. That's what makes Transfiguration such a, a beautiful kickoff to the season of Lent. At Jesus' Transfiguration, we see that he has a higher call than to just put his glory on display for all people. No, his, his calling, his purpose on this earth is to bring glory to you in heaven. Yes, this, this transfiguration, this, this marvelous moment in which we see Jesus just give a little bit of a foretaste of the glory that you and I and those disciples would someday experience was this way of kicking off his passion. A way of, of showing to those people that he was there so that you and I could experience that glory someday. But are we willing to wait? I read a study this week, and it was across a lot of different news, news outlets, and, and I'm sure some of you read it as well. It was from the CDC. Three out of ten, no, three out of five teenage girls in 21 and 22 thought that their lives were hopeless. And they had persistent feelings of hopelessness. Three out of ten teenage girls seriously contemplated the thought of suicide. 
And all of a sudden it makes sense as to why Peter said, why can't we just stay here? Can we please, please, please just stay here and not live in that world? Because what do we do as Christians? If God says that your glory isn't here yet, what hope do we have to offer to those people that are feeling hopeless? And no, we don't just stick with the teenage girls or the teenage guys, but what about the people that are 50, 60, 70, 80 that are feeling hopeless? Doesn't it hurt that, that we see here that Jesus is saying we can't stay here in glory and we're reminded that we are never going to experience that blissful perfection and glory of Christ while we're here on earth? Doesn't it almost feel sometimes as if we just aren't able to offer a way out? feels hopeless. It feels despairing and you could understand why somebody would say enough of this. And so where do we point him? We don't point him to this mountain. We point him to the cross. We point them to the cross in which we find God's glory wrapped up in the work that he does for you. No, it would not bring God glory enough to stand on top of the Mount of Transfiguration and just show off for those disciples. No, his highest glory is found in him winning his creation back to himself. Winning those that are, are hopeless, some hope. Winning those who, who are despairing, some type of light, some type of, of light at the end of the tunnel at which they can can hang their hat on. Yes, when, when we have people in our lives that are, are feeling that despair, that say, I do not want to live in this imperfect world anymore, where do we turn them to? We turn them to the cross. Because you might feel left out here in this planet, but at the cross you find your place. You might feel unloved here in this world, but at the cross you find your love. And you might feel useless, purposeless, good for nothing in this world. And in the cross we find our Savior say, no, you're mine. And my people are not purposeless. And my people are not useless. My people are mine. And that means they're worth something. Yes, as Jesus makes such a big point to say, no, we're not going to stay right here. We're going down, down to that cross. We see why he's here. To show off his glory in winning you for his father. That's the beauty of Transfiguration Sunday. That it is this kickoff into something, something much more incredible than just seeing a bright face of God on, on a mountain. But instead that it, it'll lead, it'll lead to that, that cross on Calvary in which Jesus makes certain that someday we would stand face to face our, with our God. Not for two minutes or 20 minutes or two hours, but for all eternity. I got, to, I got to meet with uh, some other Wells pastors this week. We've got a, a circuit that our church is a part of. Um, it kind of goes across South Carolina. It's called the Azalea Circuit. And I got to meet with some of the, the, the other Wells pastors. And, and we were talking through this text. 
And, and one of them said, you know, I've actually always thought of transfiguration like this. Imagine, imagine you're standing right, right on the bank of Niagara Falls. And you're with a crowd of people, and you are looking at a mag magician who is about to stuff himself into a barrel and tumble off. And you could imagine the nervousness in the crowd is, is palpable. You are probably more afraid of this trick than the person that's actually doing the trick. And maybe that magician looks out and he sees the nerves on, on everybody's faces, but, but he sees this child that, that's hiding behind their parents' legs, not even wanting to watch. And so in order to, to relieve that child just a little bit, the magician looks and he smiles at her. And he gives just a little bit of a wink. And he tells her in that moment, it is all going to be okay. What you are about to watch is not all that it seems. There's something bigger going on here. That's what the transfiguration is. These disciples were just about to go through more than I think you and I could ever possibly imagine going through during Holy Week. Jesus, their brother, their friend, was going to be mocked and beaten, and ridiculed, and they were about to witness some gut-wrenching things, and they themselves were about to do some gut-wrenching things as their cowardice would be on full display. And in the transfiguration, Jesus sort of, short, sort of says, yes, you'll see me be powerless, but here is my power. You'll see me be defenseless, but here is my defense. In this moment, we see that, that even as we look to the, the season of Lent, where it seems as if God has been sapped of his ability to do anything and that he's at the mercy of human beings, we see right here that that's, that's anything but true. You get the, the realization in our reading that the disciples, the disciples had pretty good reason to be afraid at this point. It says, when the disciples heard this, that being the voice of God himself, they fell face down to the ground and they were terrified. Those, those men, those three men that had seen Jesus do so many things, they still saw this new thing and they went, I am not worthy. I am a sinner. This is my holy God and I should be kissing the floor right now. And what is Jesus' response? Get up. And don't be afraid. The perfect Savior speaks that to his sinful, fearing children. Fear manifests itself in, in, in all sorts of ways. We, we ask ourselves throughout our lives all of these what-ifs. Well, what if this happens? What if, what if I lose control of this? How on earth could I live if I lose? You fill in the blank. Fear has a way of, of entering our mind and, and running out of control. And in those moments, Jesus wants us to listen to him. Get up and don't be afraid. When you're facing the economic problems, listen to the voice of your Savior. Get up and don't be afraid. When you're facing problems, in your family, get up and, and don't be afraid. When maybe you're even facing problems at your church, the words of Jesus remain the same, get up and don't be afraid. 
No, not because you and I are powerful enough to take care of our problems on our own, but because we have a Savior who died for our sins, and essentially what he's saying is, if I died for your sins, is there anything I wouldn't do for you? If I will go to the cross for you, how could I possibly leave you to paddle your own little boat in this world? Get up and don't be afraid. It's the message of transfiguration. We're going to have 40 days of Lent starting on Ash Wednesday, uh, this Wednesday, and and we're going to reflect on our own frailties and our own sin. And that message that comes behind all of that is get up and don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to come into the presence of God with a humble and contrite heart, ready to, to give all repentance to him. Get up and don't be afraid because you have a Savior that goes before you. You have a Savior whose purpose here is a lot more than glorifying himself. It's glorifying you. Not now, but in eternity. Amen.